Section 10 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 10. Death Grips Part 9. Monday came, and after a hard day's work I left the office and started for home. Oh my God, my God, I cannot write down the details of that night of horror. I had not taken twenty steps from the office door before I felt myself gripped by the force. Gripped and dragged ruthlessly along through the busy Shanghai streets as if I was being carried, feebly struggling in the arms of a poisson giant. He was standing in the surgery, very much as he had been before, but by the side of the bottle stood a decanter. He smiled and nodded to me as I pushed open the door and crept submissively to the chair. Ah, he said, back again? Well, I am pleased to see you. He turned to the cabinet, picking up the bottle and holding it up to the light, his head on one side. I am delighted at the compliment you pay my poor selection of spirits and coming back for some more. I think you will find this rather superior to the other. He raised the decanter and poured out a glassful. I got this especially for you, knowing your fondness for the stuff. It is the very best liqueur brandy. Strong, too. It cost... Let me see. What did it cost? Well, well, no matter. I think I can afford it. He handed me the glass, and I drained it as I had drained the others, handing it back to be refilled. He took the empty glass with a laugh. What, more? I say, be careful, you know. I appreciate the flattery, but it won't do for you to go home drunk every time. Consider how shocked dear Mrs. Keith would be. You owe your wife some consideration, you know. Never mind, here you are. You fiend, you hellhound. I longed to tell him, but my tongue refused to utter a sound. Instead, I seized the glass and drank off the contents in large gulps. Rawdon sent me home in much the same state as I had been before. No, worse, for I was morose and aggressive instead of being maudlin. And I struck my wife. Oh, God, I struck her, my sweet patient Ethel. Struck her because she was sitting there with drawn, haggard face, looking at me so sadly, so appealingly. I felt I was going mad. No mind could support this intolerable horror and live, and there was no relief for me. Turn where I would, there was no relief. The law? What could the police do for me? Had I gone to them and told them that a man was making me drink against my will and ill-treat my wife, they would have laughed at me. They would have scouted the idea and recommended me to see a doctor, not a magistrate, and they would not have been to blame. Had anyone told me two short months before that such a thing was possible, that in this twentieth century, here in this city of Shanghai, with all its boasted civilization, a man could be ridden to destruction by the will of another man or fiend. Call it what you will. Like them, I would have laughed derisively and recommended chloral to the one who feared so absurd a contingency. Then intervened another three days of calm and comparative peace. But I had never regained my spirits. That shadow, I felt, was still hanging over me, watching me ready to swoop down again and whirl me away whither it willed. Oh, the agonizing suspense of that first day, that horrible waiting with bated breath for something to happen, something that seemed vivid and clear enough, yet that the mind could not frame. It was no wonder that my bodily health began to give way under the fearful strain. My nerves were all gone, my hand shook so that I could hardly raise a spoonful of soup to my lips without its spilling. I, who but a short time before had made a boast of my steady nerves. Ethel saw me with alarm growing paler and more haggard every day. 
and on the morning of the third insisted on my seeing a doctor. I could read in her eyes what it was she feared. She thought my mind was tottering, and God knows it was, but from a cause she never guessed. The doctor came, and as I anticipated told me it was nerves. I had been overworking myself, and he recommended a rest. He left me an opiate, and that night I enjoyed the first unbroken slumber that had been my lot for many a day. On that morning of the fourth day I arose more refreshed and at ease and went down to my office. The long day's work helped to restore a little the mental equilibrium that had been so pitiably disturbed, and thus afternoon came. The paper was nearly ready for striking off, and there remained but a few more proofs to be corrected for the third and last time. I touched my bell and told the boy to get me some from the hand press. I would help correct them. They were second proofs, but for a Chinese compositor, remarkably clear that day. As I ran my eye down the column, hardly a misspelt word did I see. At last I picked out a mistake and seized my pen to make the necessary correction in the margin. But a couple of minutes after, I found myself drawing circles and squares and red ink on the margin of the proof sheet, and the correction was still unmade. Then suddenly I dropped the pen and reached for my hat, resolved upon going home. It was fully an hour before my usual time of departure. I rarely left the office until the evening's issue was well underway. But this afternoon I felt a strange reluctance to remain there any longer. I felt I wanted to go home to my waiting wife. So I rang the bell again and returned the proofs, dirty as when they had been brought to me, to the astonished devil, and hurried out. The door of the editor's sanctum was ajar, so I sneaked past, loath to be asked for an explanation of my early departure when I had none to give. Thus I gained the street, and hailing a rickshaw was soon trotting down Sejuin Road, but once in the air I felt vaguely uneasy. What had been the cause of my sudden desire to leave the office? I had a chill feeling that the sudden move had nothing to do with a wish of my own, that it was something outside of me. So troubled and ill at ease, the rickshaw took me down Sejuin Road to the bridge that spans Suchow Creek, when just as we were about to mount the incline, I felt myself gripped by the force that of late had dominated my being. What little will had hitherto controlled my actions was suddenly wrenched from me. I felt the terrible power, like an iron hand compressing my heart, as though it would silence its throbbing. I tried to tell the rickshaw coolly to go faster. Instead, I bade him stop and stepped out. I knew now what it was. That fiend had thrown his baleful influence over me again and was dragging me off to some fresh devilment. My God, what was I going to do now? I asked myself wildly as I hurried along, breaking every now and then into a short run. I was skirting the creek, making for the gardens, and beyond them, the river, was this irresistible force that was dragging and pushing me along as helplessly as though I were bound fast to a traction engine going to drag me headlong over the bund and into the water? For the moment, I hoped it was. Life like this had grown intolerable. Death, anything, was better than being the sport of a devil incarnate. I crossed the approach to the Broadway Bridge and turned into the gardens, walking straight toward the summer house that stands facing the river. As I approached, the violent trembling to which my frame was growing so accustomed shook me, and I did the last few paces at a run. It seemed but the logical result of a natural law of causation that as I approached, I should see Arnold Rawdon seated on the bench in the semi-obscurity within. 
There was the usual intense yet faraway look in his eyes as he held poised between finger and thumb the stump of a cigar that had long since gone out for lack of attention. I say I was not surprised, for I realized with an inward groan of anguish that it was for this I had come. I appeared now to have known it all along. It was for this I had paid off my rickshaw at the creek and hurried to the rendezvous. My master had called me, and I had come. As my form cut off the light in the doorway, his eyes focused themselves upon me, and he gave a little gasp of relief and sat erect, a faint color tinging the ghastly pallor of his cheeks and lips. I ran eagerly forward with outstretched hand. Did you want me, Rawdon? I am come. He rose and took my hand, looking at me with those terrible eyes in which lurked so much expression, a vindictive sneer of malice curving his lips. Oh, yes. He answered quietly. I am very glad to see you here, of course. You know I am always glad to avail myself of the benefit of your society. I felt a fierce longing to use the hand that was so cordially shaking his to strike him down at my feet. Instead, I stood gazing at him with the servile look a spaniel bends on his master. He continued, I am glad, too, to see you are sober. It must be fearfully harassing to dare Mrs. Keith to see her husband straying so recklessly from the paths of moderation and virtue. He stopped suddenly and seemed to be making an effort to concentrate his mind, while the pupils of his eyes that had been so horribly dilated narrowed and contracted almost to their normal size. I could see the iris drawing together as one sees the iris of a cat contract when brought from darkness into a brilliant light. I felt his power over me slipping away in my own will beginning, very faint at first, to assert itself. He felt the waning of his strength, too, and strove desperately to regain the ground he was losing. "'You hound!' I cried, marveling at my own temerity while yet the words passed my lips. "'This is your doing!' "'My doing, my dear fellow!' He was still cool and collected and spoke with the same bitter sneer. "'I quite fail to see wherein I am responsible for your erratic doings.' And yet I suppose it is my fault, a fault of omission still, he added ironically. One would hardly expect me to go very far out of my way to keep an ungrateful friend sober for the sake of preserving the connubial concord. You cursed devil, I cried again, this time feeling more emboldened. You know that it is your vile machinations that have forced me to drink against my will. My dear Keith, he raised his eyebrows in well-simulated astonishment. Surely you are not quite yourself. Consider, were anyone to hear you say such an absurd thing, they might insinuate you were demented. I know, I know, I answered. And if I go mad, if there is a god above us, the cause will be judged to you. The white lips drew back from his teeth in a smile that resembled the snarl of a savage beast. Ah, I think I said I would make you both suffer. And somebody was kind enough to deride the idea. We must try now what we can do with Mrs. Keith, the charming Ethel. At the mention of my sweet Ethel's name, I blazed out in sudden fury, and the intensity of my passion helped to throw off the last vestige of his dominating will. I advanced a step nearer him. Have care, Rawdon, I said hoarsely. You have me more or less in your viperous toils, but by the God in heaven, if harm comes to Ethel, I will never allow myself a moment's rest so long as you are in this world if I have to drag you down to hell in my own arms. I was at bay and desperate, and he cowered away from the menace in my eyes, sinking back limply on the seat. 
Man to man, I was vastly Arnold Rawdon's superior in physical strength, and he knew it. He knew, too, as I was beginning to feel that for the first time his power was in abeyance, crushed down by the strength of my passion. For the moment, I was master of the situation, and while I could still do it, I turned swiftly and made my way blindly out of the gardens and along Broadway to my home. I reached the house sanguine and cheerful. Surely in that struggle I had at last broken away from the spell that had been cast over me. Already I saw my life that had been so grimly lurid opening out in new vistas of peace and happiness. Oh, was ever the divine gift of free will dearer, more precious than it seemed to me at that moment, after thinking I had forever lost it. End of section 10